0: Hello there. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Coffee with a Christian is an organization that believes that everyone is deeply loved by God in spite of their shortcomings and failures, and that everyone needs the grace that was poured out through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That by trusting in Jesus' work, anyone can be forgiven and renewed through God's love. Learn more by connecting with a volunteer through the app, or on our website at coffeewithachristian.org. For this month's podcast, I'd like to present you part one of an extended conversation that I had with Spencer Porter, who spent almost 13 years as a missionary in the Ukraine, just after the fall of the Soviet Union. Spencer was kind enough to sit down with me to talk about both how he came to know the Lord and serve as a missionary at such an interesting place during such an interesting time. Folks, this one's a little long, but if you can make the time, you won't regret it. I had a great time and learned a lot but that's enough of me talking about the show let's just get to it
1: so i'm spencer porter i'm 54 years old um i have four children between the ages of nine and 17 and my mother-in-law lives with me i work as an engineer for a consulting firm grew up in richmond lived here for the first 25 or so years of my life then i moved on Finished an engineering degree in Norfolk. Uh, worked as engineer for a couple of years. Became a missionary. Moved to Ukraine. Lived mostly in Ukraine for 13 years. Met and married my Ukrainian wife. Did a couple of years of seminary, and then basically I was forced to leave that career because I have a brain tumor. That's the abbreviated version of the story. I had a brain tumor, so it was very curable, but. Um, Two years or so before they could diagnose it, it was forcing me to make major life changes and we couldn't figure it out. Oh,
0: wow. Wow. Yeah.
1: So then, um, fortunately, I I had great doctors. The tumor, which was more of a benign cyst, was removed from my brain. And at that point, it it wasn't practical to go right back into missions. And um, I went back into engineering. And I've been doing that for... It's been about 11, 12 years now.
0: Wow. I think that most... People would want to say, oh, what drew you into missions? But oddly enough, I, I feel like I kind of want to ask, like, what drew you to engineering uh, first? I was
1: kind of an eccentric so- child. My mother was fairly severely mentally ill. And so I grew up, I would, I would say there's a lot of emotional chaos in my family. And uh, like most kids that grow up in a strange background, it's your, it becomes your norm. Hmm. So that was normal for me. Um, I found that the sort of the chaos experience... I would call it, of my childhood, gave me an intellectual appetite for trying to figure out what ultimate truth was, and, and there was some sense in which I felt I needed to figure out what was ultimate and unchangeable truth, and then from that stability would come, and I was looking for that stability. I, I couldn't have expressed it in such an articulate way back at that time. So what drew me to engineering? I mean, I'm, I'm looking for ultimate truth, So it, and I did very poorly in high school. I got into VCU. I uh, was a philosophy and religious studies major, and I'm looking for ultimate objective truth. And at that time, this would have been the late 80s, and really the intellectual fad of the time was postmodernism, yeah. which boils down to the perspective that, you know, there's no such thing as objective truth. Each one of us has our own stories and the things that we like in the stories we tell ourselves. You know, So th- I was kind of astounded to find that perspective at a university level. I met several Christians. It took about a year of hanging out with them for me to become a Christian. And I still had this appetite for finding truth, but I I became very disenchanted with the idea that there was a path to discovering more truth in sort of humanities programs. It seemed like I learned to write well. And once I learned to write well, everything in the humanities was kind of a cakewalk because most people couldn't write. So I was looking for something more challenging and something that would point me to objective truth. And I remember I, I polled a bunch of people and said, What's the hardest thing I could major in? And like the consensus of my among my friends was that would be electrical engineering. So I I changed to engineering major. At that time there was no engineering program at VCU. I had to go to Old Dominion and um,
0: In electrical engineering.
1: In electrical engineering. And I did not blaze a trail of academic excellence, but I finished it.
0: (laughs) Hey, what do you you call a doctor that graduates at the bottom of his class?
1: Doctor, yeah. That's right. (laughs) So I'm an engineer.
0: All right. There you go. Nice. So you became a Christian and then you decided to go into engineering. Yeah, those things were
1: happening at about the same time. I mean, there was this disenchantment with the idea that certain fields. So so I had an idea of philosophy that came from reading Plato and that kind of thing yeah. in high school. If you ever read Plato, it's this kind of dialectic Socratic process where you're seeking what is ultimate truth and how do you test it and you question it and you re-examine it. Yeah, they and don't so do I, that
0: anymore, right? No,
1: I, and I, I had that, they, well, I guess the school of VCU philosophy was not the same as the school of uh, Socrates, um, but I mean it was a naive expectation in some mm. ways. and um, so it was, those two things were happening. There, there was this increase. I mean, there's, there's so many parts to this. I grew up in this sort of craving for what is truth and how can I really grasp it? That was there from a pretty early age. And uh, I went through a lot of stages. In the, and then there's there's sort of a new age organization that I joined when I was like in 10th grade. We would call it the Gurdjieff work. Gurdjieff is a is a Russian-Armenian philosopher who tried to sort of uh, synthesize the truths of all religions and set out a path of spiritual evolution. So it's a, it's a relatively big thing in the New Age community. People around the world are familiar with Gurdjieff stuff. And uh, there was a group like this in Richmond I found my way into. And um, I think for probably... From probably tenth grade until maybe sophomore year in college, I had this strong conviction that there is a God who is real and personal. So, the sort of Eastern ideas of God seemed to me to make God into something abstract, like you know, a field of energy or a consciousness. And I'm sure proponents of these ideas would disagree with my characterization. But to me, that sounded like something more primitive than personhood. Hmm. In uh, I believed in a personal God. And I was not sure how I could kind of find contact with him. But from this sort of Gurdjieff system, I believe within that system, they believe that you can achieve higher levels of consciousness. And to do so requires an enormous amount of discipline. Like you think of somebody meditating. Usually they're sitting in the lotus position with their fingers crossed and chanting Om and they're in, a, they're in a dimly lit room. Well, I mean, to, to those of us in the Gurdjieff work, that seemed lazy. You need to be able to enter these meditative states and live in them and mow your lawn and do your accounting work and communicate with people. So it's demanding a really intense level of focus. And I experienced some pretty amazing things that for a year or two made me think that I was on the right path, that you know, eventually my consciousness could evolve and at some point there would be a real contact with this personal God. And um, it just became increasingly, a few things became increasingly clear. One was this Gurje system did not really believe in a personal God. And the the conflicts between that and my understanding of God became more apparent, especially as I read the Bible more. Um, Although it was honestly, it was a great group of people. I mean, I, when I think of them now, I kind of miss... There were some great friends I had in that group. When I first probably got involved with it, I was probably like 16 or 17. Okay. And I was in it for maybe two, three years. Okay. And um, I haven't thought about this in a while. The the Gurdjieff work, which was... There was a group of like 30 or so people that were in this in Richmond. I'm sure a lot of them still are, but I haven't talked to any of them in forever. For me... At that time in my life, I had experienced a lot of failure. I had failed second grade, fourth grade, seventh grade, and ninth grade. I made up two of those grades in summer school, but I still graduated from high school a couple of years older than anybody else. And it was my first experience of becoming friends with people who were adults and professional people, and these people really respected me. Huh. And so it was it was really a great group of people in a lot of ways. That made it very hard for me to leave it. Like leaving it philosophically was one battle, but then disengaging disengaging from that completely, it meant disengaging from those people, and that was much harder. So there was a long period of time where uh, I had gradually ceased to believe in many of the core elements of this Gurdjieff philosophy, Uh, but I kept going back to these meetings and we're meditating together we're doing a lot of different things together finally I remember I was trying to I, I felt for probably six to twelve months that I could main I could keep hold of this group and all the fundamental teachings in one hand and what I knew of Christianity and the Bible in the other hand and that I could merge them and what I can tell you is that works as long as you don't really start to read the Bible as long as you keep your idea of who Jesus is a little blurry and and the demands that he places in, in his words to you, if they're all distant, uh, you can reconcile that with a lot of stuff. But the more directly you look at him, the, the, the power of that personality and the personal power of those words, and it, it became, I felt a confrontation building inside me, and uh, I can remember... Various times when, uh, uh, so our, our friend Bill, who we were just yeah. seeing with a few hours ago, I remember this feeling of helplessness, you know, caught between two things that were both incredibly important to me. And I remember being college students and telling Bill, you know, I, I don't know, Bill, I feel like I'm between these two big forces and I can't decide, and it's like I'm a pawn. And he just kind of looked me in the face and said, you are not a pawn. That's just, you know, basically he's telling me that's something someone says to themselves when they don't want to make a decision. Hmm. And I remember I went home and uh, and I, I feel this increasing conflict and I said, I prayed and I basically said, God, um, I think this Gurdjie thing is all right. I think it's acceptable and I think it can be merged with what I know about you. And uh, if that's not true, you need to really show me because that's how I'm going to proceed unless you really let me know otherwise. And this is my acknowledgement that I feel some conflict, but I can't put my finger on it. Yeah. And I did one of those things where you flip up in the Bible and you randomly look at a verse and that was the verse in Proverbs that says, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end, it is the way of death.
0: Hmm.
1: And that hit me like a spear, you know, just the, the, not the words themselves, but the, the, the living sense of God's voice speaking to me. And I sort of surrendered in, in, in an emotional sense. I, I told God, all right. Whatever you show me, I'm going to do. I understand I need to leave. I don't know how I'm going to leave, but I'll leave. And uh, I didn't feel that God was like demanding it instantaneous from me. He, he needed the decision to be made from my will. And I made it. But it was probably for months I kept doing both. And it was, a lot of it was a sense of, I don't know how I could explain this new faith to my old friends. And I love them. And uh, I don't know. I wasn't sure what to do. And now I'll tell you something really interesting that happened. Um, I I had prayed that prayer, and I knew I was leaving, but I kept going. And so I kind of was like, I know I'm leaving, but I don't know how to cut the cord. You know, it's sort of like the outworking of the decision I had already made that I couldn't figure out. And uh, most of this Gurdjieff group, we really believed that spiritual knowledge was esoteric, almost like a material thing, like gold. If I have more gold, you have less gold, you know, so so there's this sense in which, it would, I don't want to give a whole evangelistic explanation of a new age philosophy, I don't agree with no, it anymore, that's fine, that's fine. but uh, there was a sense in which you could only know the truths of this movement by experiencing them. So you can only do so much in, in explaining, at some point a person has to start meditating, and you teach them certain practices, and, and the concepts become paired with an experience they've been through, and then the knowledge becomes sort of three-dimensional. So the group was very sensitive to people sort of intellectualizing about things because it sounded like BS when it was coming from someone who wasn't doing the work. Hmm. And uh, so, it, it's, so for this reason, the group very rarely did anything that was outreach, Every once in a while, they would say, you know, we're going to have a group and we're going to read a book. But that really wasn't a regular thing. They had the philosophy that one of them said to me, we believe that if you're ready in this lifetime, you'll find us. And uh, when I heard that at the initial stages, that just made it more fascinating to me. Oh, you mean it's hard and you're not reaching out to pull me in, but I have to. (laughs) So. They did an event like this where they posted some notices around downtown that said there was going to be talks about the work of Gurdjieff at this time and in this place. And it was a, I think it was an auditorium that was part of J. Sgt. Reynolds. So there was sort of a, within our group, there was sort of a senior group that had been doing this for decades, and then there was sort of a junior group that I was part of. And, and altogether it was probably 60 or so people. And Up on the stage, you know, you got five or six of the most experienced people, and then you got an auditorium, and there weren't a ton of people there. There might have been one or two dozen, and they would ask the people on the stage a question. And now, the important thing within this group was that when you're explaining something, you almost have to find your internal experience of it and connect emotionally with your story. I know how goofy this sounds, but I don't want to spend three more hours experiencing. But imagine that you have like a taste of an experience you had in meditation. And you almost have to bring that taste into your mind when you talk about it, if you're going to do it well. So I'm watching people on the stage and I know what's going on and I can see them sort of struggling to answer questions. And uh, there was one lady, her name was Jillian up on the stage. who was asked a question now back up for a minute. I'm driving up to this thing, maybe an hour before and I'm still struggling because God is kind of starting to press me, like you know, you 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 told me you were going to leave this months ago, and you're you're just playing games now. And I'm not trying to weed. I just couldn't I, I just couldn't figure out the how. And in the car, before I went in, I kind of broke down. I'm like, okay, God, I give in. This is the last thing I'm ever going to. I'm not going back. Period. I'm done after this. And the way you can feel a weight lifted when you repent of something and you feel forgiveness. I felt a tremendous weight. <sighs> Just a breath of fresh air. And I go in and I felt so good. And I sat down and I'm conscious this whole time. This is it. This is the last time I'm here. And a part of me is grieving that I'm not going to see these people anymore. But I feel a yep. lot of liberty in my spirit. Now, something that would happen sometimes in our meditation groups, there would be in a little room not necessarily bigger than this, might have 10, 12 people in it. We're all meditating. We might meditate for an hour. And uh, every once in a while, something would happen where it's like, uh, so it happened between me and the guru a couple of times where it's like without seeing or being close to each other, you could feel one another touch each other. So it's a little bit of an out-of-body experience. You feel like your spirits make contact or something. And I'm sitting there feeling kind of liberated and I see Jillian up on the stage and she gets asked a hard question. And she looked at me and I could feel her sort of reach out to me. And then she sort of jumps like this, like something repelled or shocked her. Well, silly me. I went to one more thing and the one more thing I went to is like, a, it's a small group with Jillian and five or six other people. And she says, what was going on with you? And I said, "What?" Well, she said, you know, I reached out to you and there was something there and it was so solid. It was so strong, you know. It was—I can't remember her exact words, but it was like—it's like a solid rock was there. And I'm like, I can't think how to explain this. I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, I know what you mean, but I don't know what that was. <laughs> <laughs> Missed my big opportunity right there. That was
0: a perfect opportunity. Yeah, well, Christ. you know,
1: if I if I had been as articulate uh, at 19 or whatever I was then. Hey,
0: you were you are a brand new believer in the faith at that point, yeah. so yeah. Uh. It's hard to to know how to express your faith. Well,
1: and there was this sense, so here's the really thing that limited me. I mean, I've really never had much trouble talking and expressing myself. But the rule at these meetings we had is you begin speaking about what you experienced in meditation. And in some way, in my mind, I'm really concentrating on what you're saying. And I'm asking myself, is what he's saying coming from his conscious experience? Or is he just blah, 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 blah? So, and our tendency was to think most of the time people are all blah, blah blah. There's not substance. I don't know how to describe this. Like among Christians, if you know the navigators, they've always had a very intense, strong system of you know you couldn't mess around. The navigators were like the marines of of, of parachurch ministries. You know what I'm talking about? You know, I, I haven't had a lot of interactions with the navigators. Well, uh, back at, back I, in the day, okay. that's the way they were. You had to memorize certain verses. You had to meet. It was it was rigid.
0: Okay. In a good
1: way, especially okay. for guys, it was you know navigators would kind of slap you around. Don't tell me you're doing Bible study and you can't quote first Corinthians twelve to me <laughs> you know? there was a certain i i don't want to mischaracterize them i say i honestly I say that with respect yeah. for my memory of them, but I would refer people would talk to me about this group after I became a Christian I said this group was like the, the the navigators of the new age they were they were the marine corps of the you know okay you know so if you came and started talking about well i've experienced the fields of conscious, they they'd be like it will be hard for them to not roll their eyes, you know. Hmm. And um, so, with with my, for me to launch into the gospel, it, it would it would have sounded to them, in my thinking at the time, like launching into any intellectual thing, that was disconnected from a direct meditative experience. Hmm. And and in their mind, it would honestly that all that stuff it like gets muted out. You if you're new and you you kind of, it's like you're talking out of your butt you know, you, 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 you need to do more actual work because we hear how you're talking and, uh, yeah, we like you and we don't want to say we don't believe you. We just think you shouldn't believe you either. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and um, so... So, do you pursue meditation in your Christian life and what does that look like? How would you say that differs...
1: So that is a very complicated question because well, you can mean a thousand different things under the word meditation. So even when you said Gurdjieff medication, I almost wanted to object because it, that's not an accurate description. But okay. there, so uh, I will say this. Most forms of Eastern meditation involve uh, a kind of emptying, yes, a, an emptying of your mind. And the ones I've found more suspicious involve cultivating a state of submissiveness Hmm. but it's a state of submission to I don't know what and that I find as a Christian I find that rather scary and I've I've always been very resistant there are but there are so many forms of meditation there are people talk about mindfulness meditation sitting quietly and focusing on uh, the feel of the feel of the breeze on your face I don't think that's necessarily a sinful dangerous activity or something Christian meditation, I mean as it was explained to me by other Christians at the time is about filling your mind. And my especially in my early Christian life, I memorized a lot of scripture and I found it extremely helpful.
0: So so Psalm 1, so the first Psalm in the Bible. Oh yeah,
1: meditate on it day and night, is that what? You're...
0: Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night.
1: Yeah. So So some of the passages I memorized, Romans 8, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, Romans 1, uh, John 1 through 3. I mean, at different points in my life, I was able to recite almost all of those verbatim. And, and it's interesting because memorizing is this, is this meditative practice of repetition. Mm-hmm. And, but it is not a blind repetition because the miracle that happens in that kind of meditation is the 75th time you report, repeat in your mind John 3, 1, something occurs to you about it that you didn't think of the first 74 times that you repeated it. So it was more of a filling as opposed to an emptying of
0: That's the right. Mind. I would say that that would be a fundamental difference between yeah. Eastern and... Judeo-Christian meditation yes. is the idea of filling yourself with God's word. Yes. And one pastor that I heard exegete that passage, actually, he, going back to the original Hebrew, said that the word for meditation was similar to the mm. word for chew yeah. uh, that chewing they would the use to describe yeah. a cow chewing a cud. the cud or, yeah, and so the idea is that you know the cow, which is kind of disgusting when you think about it, because the cow is munching on grass. You're not supposed grass, to think about it that deeply. And then it goes into his stomach, but then he, he how many cows? I think five cows have or like five stomachs. Yeah. So then he he regurgitates that grass back up and chews it again, and swallows it again, and goes to a different stomach, and so it's kind of like. I think as, you could
1: really break this down. It'd be some great sermons for people. Yeah. With the with the regurgitating. The,
0: the idea that you. <laughs> You ingest scripture, right? Gets into you, and then it comes up again, and then you ingest that again, and it's it's the even though it's the same passage, right? That the the fact that it can, you can look at it through different faucets facets. facets, And
1: there's something else to the idea of there's something else in common between Eastern and Christian meditation with the idea of submission, Hmm. except that uh, I have been exposed to. Methods of meditation that are more Eastern, where they want you to cultivate a state of submission, and then it, it, it starts. To talk, then they can start talk about spirit guides and this and that. And I'm like, I'm not submitting myself to something I don't know. Whereas, as a Christian, in prayer and in studying the scriptures, you can't pray correctly or really read the scriptures correctly without a state of submission. You, you have to come to it and say, As I, I'll, I'll, here's the advice for anybody. I remember after I read the whole Bible and some of it several times and parts of it memorized, I would say, it's not interesting to me anymore. And uh, I, remember, I can't remember who was preaching, but he said, try this when it gets boring to you. Before you open the Bible, kind of put your hand on it and say, God, what you show me today I commit myself to obey now, open it up and try to have it be boring for you it's It's not boring it's frightening at, mm. at that point, so that's very different but um I do think that there there are and I c- I, I can't really pronounce everything evil and good, but there are you know there are things you can do that are cultivating a state of quietness that may not involve scripture memorization and there may not be anything wrong with them. But I think a Christian needs to be sensitive to whether any practice is going to bring them nearer in their relationship to God or farther away. And sometimes you don't necessarily understand why, but if in your spirit, this is not deepening your relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not the way to go.
0: Hmm. And um, that's
1: all I can say about that really.
0: I think that's a good segue or my next question which is going to be so you're you're you've you've left the cult you've joined a different cult Christians yep. best cult in my opinion I, I th- I've heard a lot heard a lot of people call Christians a cult um, I think it's just some half-hearted atheists that... well it's
1: like meditation you you've got to really work on defining what makes something a cult so I encountered people at one point uh, uh, me and some friends started a Christian student group at Old Dominion University. And the man who was uh, dean of students at the time was part of an organization called the Cult Awareness Network. And they had definitions of cult. Basically, if you joined an organization and you had significant life changes, that was a cult. And I'm like, well, uh, boy, we need to take out all of Christianity, most world religions, also the military. You know, sometimes extreme changes are good. Yeah. But they were—they were. I think uh, I don't think that most of the people in this group were Christians, and so I don't think they had quite the, the ability to judge. But I think their motives were that they had seen students taken advantage of by organizations of yeah. different kinds, and this would include Moonies and uh, yeah. all kinds of things. But unfortunately, they they put all of these things that were religious and If you weren't secular, then you were probably a cult to them. Yeah, I think of something a cult. As it, 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 to me, something becomes a cult, it's, a, it's, it's the level of coercive control over your individual life. So I think there are many religious groups that I think they're wrong in what they believe, but I wouldn't call them cults. Correct. So I wouldn't call this thing. I did a cult. I mean, it was mature, responsible adult people committed to a system of thinking and doctrine that I think is incorrect. And, uh, now, there are churches that I would say are pretty darn culty, too. Oh, for sure. We've decided who you're going to marry. Me and the other elders have figured this out. Yeah. So none of this you know, dating girls that you think are godly and attractive. Or, you, got need,
0: it. or you need to shun this person out of your right, life. Right, absolutely. They're, yeah, they're, exactly. a, uh, they're a negative influence. Right. And like.
1: they begin to control, extreme control of yeah. what you eat and when you sleep and, and different things to make you passive and submissive and obedient. I mean, Christianity believes in, in a committed obedience and subjection to Jesus. But when someone starts to tell me that they are the exclusive channel of what Jesus wants me to do, I'm out of here. The other thing
0: is uh,
1: yielding to Jesus tends to be something that requires a great deal more courage and not more passivity.
0: And I I think that there's another aspect of it where a lot of cults demand conformity. And I believe deeply that when people really engage with Christianity God gives us personality and intelligence and he I feel like people almost become more themselves yeah. because they are less conformed by secular society by whatever prior things had happened in their past that were holding them back or causing them to
1: you know peer pressure can be good and bad yeah. Uh, if you align yourself with, you know, if, if climbing the corporate ladder, making the most amount of money, sleeping with the most partners, all those are, the, and, and those are things I think I don't know what you're getting at. It yeah. creates a sameness. Yes. You think about this in manufacturing, you know, I'm an engineer, we can make things, we can make paper, we can make walls, we can make two fours. we can make lamps. Guess what? We can make a billion of them and they'll be almost identical. Now, go out and look at any two snowflakes, any two blades of grass any two trees, and you see, uh, to me, that there's an analogy there with you become nearer to God and that the, the forces that would tend to make you identical to a lot of other people are actually weakened. Yes. And the forces uh, that kind of propel you into being more in alignment with the true you that God created you to be, which is utterly
0: unique, Yes.
1: those become much more powerful. Yeah. So a Christian, to, in my mind, should be a far less passive person than a non-Christian, and and I don't know. To me, that's that's obvious to someone who's on the other side of Christianity. You know, I'm sure they look and they say, "Well, you know, your Christianity is full of you know, you don't drink and you don't do this and you don't do that." And gosh, how boring! And I'm like, drink and do gosh, how boring? What, what what are you talking about? You think you're unique? You know, how many clubs do you go to? That are, you think your Miller Light makes you? I don't makes know, you yeah. Unique? I don't know. Like, give what, me a break. Yeah. I know a lot of rednecks that would uh, look a lot like
0: you. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, nothing oh, you're, wrong. Yeah. So, so you're you finished your engineering degree. How long did it take you to get into ministry? Graduated in
1: '92, and um, I understand that this mission I felt I was on even before college, where I have to find the truth and then mm-hmm. I have to do something with it. I think that was probably a you know a divinely implanted thing. And it was there in its own way before I really recognized who Jesus was and a lot of stuff. I say that to say that as soon as I became a Christian, in some part of me, I wanted to do full-time ministry. I wanted my time and my energies to be devoted to things of real universal meaning and consequence. And, um, well, the church I was involved in didn't really think of, they, they didn't particularly value the traditional path of going to seminary and things like that. So it wasn't clear how I was going to do that. I finished my engineering degree. I got an engineering job. For two years, I worked in the engineering job, and I just missed ministering to people. Hmm. And um,
0: When you say ministering to people, in, like, in what capacity? What, is, well, what does I, that look like? Well,
1: uh, the, uh, student ministry is really exciting because as a student, you constantly encounter new people they're from all walks of life, faiths, nationality, and everyone is at an age where there's some level of a willingness to examine their beliefs and think about what their future is going to be. I mean, in a sense, we're all in this institution because we're thinking about our future and preparing for it, and that that's a that's really a unique sort of situation and that's that's designed for discussing important things and. And you got more free time, and of course, in your twenties, you have a lot more energy. So I missed that atmosphere. I missed part of every day, including interacting with my friends and and think about what we're going to do on the campus and getting ready for the next Bible study I was going to lead and discipleship groups and training other students to do evangelism. Just the the sort of cutting edge sense of the constant changing, living moving forward. And, you know, my engineering job, I mean, everywhere I've ever worked, it doesn't take long for everybody in the company to know that I'm a Christian. It's just that when you only work day to day with like 10 people, after a few months, they know you've had most, you know, over the next five years, there'll be a few other opportunities for conversations with them, but that's nothing compared to the richness of the level of interaction that you could have as a college student. So I missed that. And, um, you know, I still got some of it in my church involvement thing. But there was this sense that most of my day, every day, is just sort of doing engineering and technician stuff and on computers. And those things were interesting to me, but they, didn't, they weren't as emotionally compelling. So um, it took me. I went to the company. It was, it was a tough time to graduate in electrical engineering because uh, this was 92. I oh. mean, in 88, Reagan started downsizing the military. And the engineering market was flooded with a lot of engineers as the military was on, downsized. And I graduated with mediocre grades and a little piece of paper and didn't find it easy to get a job. And I took a job as sort of, as sort of an engineering technician. It was a good hands-on. It was, really was a pretty good starter job. But I took the job and a lot of promises were made to me. You know, well, you'll do this for a year and then we'll move you over here and we'll increase your pay by that much. And they started, as they started to kind of violate all their promises my feeling of moral obligation to stick with them was decreasing radically. And, uh, and I started looking and thinking, well, maybe this is, you know, God's cause I want to go do something full time. And I started asking a bunch of people. There were the Soviet union had just recently fallen apart. So the, the evangelical church in America was experiencing this wave of enthusiasm to, to penetrate behind the iron curtain because it was no longer iron to them. And, um, I looked into several different things, and I kind of rode that wave. I, I remember hearing a, a, an announcement in my church. I was going to Tabernacle Church of Norfolk at the time, and there was an announcement that we had a missionary in Kiev who felt like he needed a younger guy to come and help him. And this guy's name was Dirk Morozic, and I kind of knew Dirk a little bit. He had taught a Sunday school I was in. I didn't know him real well, though. So they announced this, you know, we'd like the church to pray, you know, if there, maybe there's a young man. So I walked up afterwards and I said, well, what is this? You know, I've met Dirk and I'm interested. You're interested. And it was kind of amazing how things fell together. I mean, most of the people in leadership in the church didn't know me at all. And uh, a few months later, they were kind of consecrating me and sending me to Ukraine and praying, paying, pray, paying, for it and praying for me. And it was a bit of a whirlwind from that moment, but it was very exciting Wow, that's awesome. Uh, It was awesome, yeah. It was a big change from the boring engineering work, i got to tell you. It was a very big change. How
0: long did it uh, take you to learn the language over there?
1: Well, um, let's see. I took two years of Spanish in high school, and I thought, yeah, you know, if you drop me into Mexico, I'm pretty sure that in a few months I'd be speaking just fine. So I I thought that Russian would be that way. And, you know, like a year later, I was going, my name is... (laughs) It was really, they're, they're, you know, when you're, when you're disoriented and you're thrust into a new language, you go through this psychological breakdown process. I mean, the short answer to your question is it was around two years before I really started speaking. Hmm. And, um, but it seems like now a lot of that was wasted time. Um, the, and it was wasted because I was just too stressed about it. Because you think about the way a baby learns a language. The baby just sits there. And says, I've learned that when I say this milk sound, I get some, you know, yeah. and then that sticks really good, you know, and uh, and the babies learn the sounds like that. But it's kind of a passive learning, and it's hard to get your brain in that state as an adult, partly because as an adult, you're more proud and you're less dependent. So I remember after I became pretty fluent in Russian, I knew a lot of other Americans and missionaries in Ukraine, and they'd say, oh, how did you do it? How did you do it? Because some of them had been there four or five years longer than me and still hadn't got it. Oh, wow. and uh and I said so my eventual answer was so here's the thing this is what's going on most of the time in those situations that the, the problem the, the barrier between you and fluency is the 30,000 embarrassing humiliating stupid mistakes you'll make and be laughed at by Russians but that's all 30,000 of them are between near you are now and that perfect fluency on the other side so how many you want to knock out today and if you go out what happens is emotionally it's not very reinforcing. Go out and you say something. You sound stupid. Nobody understands you. You get tongue-tied. You go back home and you're like, I am, I am not going to do that again. Or what I'll do is I'll go hit the books for Russian. Well, after a certain point that happens pretty quick, the books don't help you anymore. Because hmm. you get in your brain you sort of have a passive vocabulary that you can expand. And these are all the words that you'll recognize if someone says them. But the active vocabulary is a, is a different set of words that you're ready to speak. And they're on the tip of your tongue. And it's a great deal of work. Pushing them from that one memory bank into the other one, and that work is painful. It involves headaches. It's embarrassing and it's frustrating. And there is no way around all that. Once you get and and I guess that's the up one of the upsides of my childhood. My mom was paranoid, hallucinating, schizophrenic, and it a, and I developed this great resilience against being embarrassed as a young kid because my mom my mom shaved all the hair off her head at one point. At one point, she didn't wear shoes for three years, you know, and I'm just like, it's just my mom. And I remember my sisters would just like cringe at embarrassment. and I'm like, eh, it's mom. <laughs> you know? So one of the dividends of this very dysfunctional childhood is it's really hard to make me cringe with embarrassment. And so I I started, I and I, I met this guy named Jerry who worked for InterVarsity in uh, West, Western Ukraine. Western Ukraine tends to speak Ukrainian, which is a little bit more similar to Polish, and uh, Eastern and Southern Ukraine speak Russian, and they're more culturally Russian. So Jerry, uh, I just interacted with him a few times. I remember he spent the night at my house one time, and his Ukrainian was unbelievable. Like my Ukrainian friends in Kiev would say, Spencer, your friend's Jerry, his Ukrainian is way better than mine. And I'm like, how did you do it? And he goes, well, I just realized I would never get it until I started to speak it exclusively. And I just kind of, he sort of made a vow to himself. For the next year, I will not speak English unless it's my mother calling me. And I, uh, that's kind of the path I took, you know, that, uh, that uh, unless, and that—and that's honestly, that's, it's interesting because you always, there's all these Russian friends I had that would speak English and we would meet and I would start speaking Russian. My Russian's kind of feeble. So they start answering me in English and they're sort of like, oh, come on, speak English. Well, if you keep speaking Russian, it, that battle only lasts about 25 seconds.
0: Hmm.
1: But most people, because they don't have that the, the people who are not managing to learn the language are because they haven't made that hard commitment inside themselves. So the other person starts speaking English and they just go, oh, okay. And they just start speaking. That's It's comfortable. It's, it's easy. So I swallowed headaches and embarrassment and humiliation, and then it just started to come. Hmm. Um, but, you know, you go through this. I, I feel like I wasted more than a year being wrapped up before I, in in like the embarrassment and the dislike and the headaches before I just you got to go whole hog.
0: It's almost like pride was one of the number things holding totally. pride was one of the number one things holding you back in the situation. Yeah. Cuz you you don't want the embarrassment, you don't yeah. want. The, but my
1: observation was that most people in that situation uh, were prevented from mastering the language by pride. So I'm I'm not, I'm agreeing that my problem was pride but the interesting thing is Somehow God got me over it, but a lot of people were. It
0: became like a permanent barrier for them. Hmm. Well, I mean, pride is almost always a permanent barrier to, to a lot yeah. of people.
1: Well, their reasoning is sort of like: since I can't do that without experiencing humiliation, therefore I can't do that. I can't do it.
0: Hmm.
1: I'm like, you, you can, but you know, you want the path to go through like. A pleasant meadow and unfortunately it's like a muddy bog with horse poop. That's you, know, so you gotta go through that. You get to the other side. There's no way around it. You know, there's not a rope bridge, but and and uh and yeah. um yeah. But it was some my Russian is a little rusty, but my wife is Russian, so I'm not like I don't really
0: forget it, but she Russian or Ukrainian or both? Oh, no. When you
1: ask Russian or Ukrainian, therein is the question. So Ukraine is divided diagonally by the Dnieper River. And if you live to the northwest of this, you are Ukrainian. And you, your culture is, your, your religious history is more Catholic, and your language is closer to Polish, and you feel a little closer to Western Europe. If you live to the southwest of this, then uh, you're more Russian. Your language is russian your thinking is more Russian. And for many people, especially in that area, if you had said, hey, if I had to give you a choice right now, I could take away your Ukrainian passport and give you a Russian one or leave you with you, which one would you have? And a lot of those people would have said, oh, Russian. I never wanted this stupid Ukrainian passport. I was always Russian. And then they told me, well, you live here now. We're calling you Ukrainian, but it didn't matter because we were USSR. So you didn't really care if that was the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic or the Russian Soviet Socialist. It was all the same anyway. But then all of a sudden they changed these barriers. And I'm standing here and they're telling me, congratulations, you're Lithuanian. What? <laughs> you know? So when, when now, it, and if you live on close to the middle of that river in certain places, there'll be this mix. Of, like yeah. there's a mix of the two languages like Spanglish. They mm. call it Surzik. And uh, I remember I knew lots of people that spoke so you know, and I could understand. I'd understand like thirty percent, and I would like, I'd be like, Sasha, I have a question for you, and he goes, What? I said, So how do you know in the middle of the sentence whether to stick a Ukrainian word or a Russian word Then He goes, You just have to live there. You just have to grow up here. <laughs> There's no, you cannot be taught, you know. Now I I haven't been there. I left like two thousand six or seven, so my understanding. My guess is that everything is becoming much more Ukrainian. They, they've swung back towards their more nationalism. And it's probably, if you're very pro-Russian and you hang around in Kiev, you, you probably don't want to walk into any dark alleys or wear your Putin hat too much. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Although when I lived there, that's the capital. And when I lived there, 60% of the people spoke Russian at all. Huh.
0: Um,
1: so... Yeah, everything I say about Ukraine is based on my experience of 11 years ago or Okay, more, so. so
0: a little dated. A little bit, yeah. 11 years doesn't seem that long, though.
1: I don't think so. No. It doesn't no. seem like that. I mean, we would love to go back, it's just not cheap to go back. Yeah,
0: or necessarily safe right now. Yeah, oh, I think
1: it, it could be safe enough. Okay. You'd have to be careful about certain things. Yeah, I spent about half my time in Kiev, which is smack in the center, and it's the capital. And then I spent about half, the other half of my time in Sevastopol, which is on the Crimean Peninsula, and it, and it is now no longer Ukraine, but Russia. So my, my mother in law is from there. She lives with us now. She has a green card and that kind of thing. But to, it, it's so miscom- discombobulated. Mm-hmm. So my wife's brother lives over there, and he has a son that we've never met. So, but like, we want to send him some clothes and stuff. So here you've got two options Sevastopol is in the Crimea which um, in the view of like the United Nations is still Ukraine, but Russia has taken it and it's run by Russia. And if you were to ask each person living there in private, do you prefer being Russian? Probably 70% of more of them would say, yeah, I'm glad I'm Russian. I didn't want to be Ukrainian. So if we send that box of clothes for this little boy and we say to this person in Sevastopol, Ukraine, then the International Postal Service takes it and says, Ah, oh, yes, Sevastopol, Ukraine. We'll get it there for you. And they take it over there, and then it gets to the border, and Russia takes it, looks at it and says, This is Sevastopol, Ukraine. Sevastopol's not in Ukraine. We will not take this package. So, you could think, Well, next time I'll write Sevastopol, Russia. And then you bring it to the post office, and the International Postal Service says, We do not recognize such a place. There's no Sevastopol, Russia. There's Sevastopol, Ukraine. So, you can't send them anything. So I, I'm just giving you this as an illustration of how difficult it is to answer the question: Ukrainian, Russian. My wife, so her last name, Yrominko, uh Last names that are Slavic that end in uh, N-K-O or U-K. The Nkos or the Uks, those are Ukrainian ethnically. But you'll find people with those last names all over Russia. You know, thousands of miles from
0: oh, yeah. Ukraine.
1: So my wife's last name would indicate that she's Russian, uh, would indicate that she's Ukrainian, but her her ancestors are mostly like Western Russia and Siberia and stuff like that. So she's, but she doesn't really speak Ukrainian. I mean, the, the languages are close enough that if a Russian's committed to learning Ukrainian, you know, they need a month. And, and um...
0: so it almost sounds like you kind of fell into ministry. As a, as a foreign missionary, but you really developed a passion for it as you served. Would you say that's accurate? Or? I
1: would say that's accurate. I, was, I mean, you and I were talking earlier today, and I do feel I was very blessed that the, 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 the people who first led me to Christ and the church I first was, was just uh, disproportionately committed to seeing, to fulfilling the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, was, it was everyone's heartbeat. Was, was that the purpose of the Christian church on earth is to bring the gospel to every tribe and nation to the very end of the world. And, and I do mean local missions and international missions. Yeah. That is what the church is for. Now, there's a lot of people that I think would, would sort of agree with that statement, but they don't have an emotional commitment to it. And uh, so I was fortunate that all my early Christian examples, there was a solid commitment to that. So when I went to VCU I mean, we were trying to start a small church that over after a few years it kind of flopped around and didn't work out but the friendships I made there and the values that I absorbed were awesome and then um, I went to Old Dominion similar story for a while so there was the same organization was trying to plant they were trying to plant churches by universities and they didn't plant it well So both of those sort of flopped, although I still have great friends from those years. And the church I found my way to afterwards, Tabernacle Church of Norfolk, was also... Now, their heart was really foreign missions, but as someone who who kind of felt passionately that the purpose of the church is to reach every person with the gospel, it wasn't difficult to get me interested in foreign missions. Because in my heart, I was like, you know, if I'm doing it somewhere... I'm doing it, and that's good. And and there was just as the whole church was experiencing a a wave of enthusiasm for reaching the former Soviet Union. I caught that too. That sounds exciting, and they've never heard. They don't know. Yeah, I'll go over there. You know, I'll learn that language in three weeks. It'll be no problem. You know, (laughs) and uh, Uh. and so I rode that wave. I did look at other ministry. I was trying to figure out full time ministry, and I looked at a few other things too. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I looked at. I I looked at possibly going on staff with several different organizations and um, interviewed with a few of them. And um, it was very unplanned, sort of how it fell together for me to go to Ukraine. And uh, it was, my goodness, it was hard, especially the first few years before I got the language. And uh, a lot of struggles, a lot of personal struggles. when When you put yourself in a situation like that where you don't really have a healthy support network and you have a mission and you have how would I describe the pressure? I mean so as a missionary towards the end of my missions career I was being supported by probably four or five churches um, and the missions committees in these churches and missions pastors that I would report to. Um, I had my own we called it the Ukraine board it was like a separate missions board at my church that I reported to then we had a world missions board Um, I had my own missions pastor and my senior pastor and I had 200 individual people sending me money on about a monthly basis. So you think about the levels of accountability here. You are accountable to five churches, 200 individuals, five mission boards, five, you know, each one of these people has a vested they're like stockholders. They have a real right to have expectation from you, but all their expectations are not identical. So it can, if you let it it can become a very unhealthy kind of pressure.
0: Hmm.
1: And um, that was tough to adjust to. At the same time, I had some conflicts with other missionaries, especially in the early years. They were just really disappointing. But especially as I started to get the language, and one of the great things about my church was they sort of they gave me a great deal of freedom. I mean, I go over ostensibly with this responsibility to support this older missionary who's been there a couple of years before. But then when I get there, he only needs about 20% of my available time. And at the same time, all kinds of organizations, you know, uh, Campus Crusade, uh, uh, Great Commission Ministries, the Southern Baptist uh, International, InterVarsity, the International League of it's called IFES. They were all like happy to have anybody. So uh, what was fantastic was that I had to do this 20% in uh, my church and my people were happy and on the rest of the things I could choose. And they wanted me to report to them on what I was doing. But it was this, the opposite of controlling. As long as they could see I was investing my time wisely and I was doing at least what the thing they required over here, they were very happy that there was other ministry going on. And uh, it, it was great. It was great because it allowed me to explore what I could do and who I could work with and um, I, I was able to do, so just some of the things that would work out. So for example, I remember I start working a little bit at one university. Now, InterVarsity, it's called IFES, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. So this is an umbrella organization all over the world. And when you hear about InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, that's the American expression of it. But, but InterVarsity belongs to IFES. and. You know, there's a German wing and a Russian and a Ukrainian, so it's it's a really a world thing. Cool. And I did a lot of, yeah, it's it's a really cool organization. I did not know that. They were starting some things up in Ukraine. They were trying to get these student movements and student Bible studies going, and um, I had done a lot of student ministry, so I went and offered to help them, and they're like, well, you know, we could really, we really want to get things going at this university over here, which was called Dragomanov University. I went over there, and I said, um, they were always they were looking for English teachers at the time because now imagine you know you, you always had Russian teachers because the Soviet Union demanded Russian be taught everywhere and many countries didn't like that because that Russian wasn't their language. Then they start teaching Ukrainian and and they have and they, but there's this upsurge in interest in learning English because now they're open up to the rest of the world. So the university, doesn't have enough English teachers, and the people that speak English well are finding that they can go make a lot more money than at the university. So the university is kind of desperate for English teachers. And I'm like, well, you know, I've got a college degree. I could teach English. And they said, well, you know, okay, but we could only pay you like $14 a month, you know. And <laughs> this you know, your, The expression on your face says you should understand why there are better English teachers left for greener pastures. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I said, uh, now that time... University wants to have Bible studies in the university building. The university is saying, no, you're a religious group. We won't allow that. And, uh, I, and I needed to learn Russian. And I said, uh, I can't even remember how this all came together in my head. But basically I said to them, okay, you don't have to pay me at all. And this really freaks them out. What? And I said, I don't think you understand what $14 means to an American, $14 a month. You know, I don't really want to further impoverish your university. <laughs> it's it's you know? all right do yourself a favor and buy yourself like a coffee machine yeah, or something. Yeah. <laughs> and they said well i said they said why would you do this for free i said well i do have conditions i want some things from you oh what is this and uh i mean i'm kind of combining multiple conversations but basically this is what we boiled it down to i said okay i keep having to renew my visas and go out of the country and give my documents to the embassy and, and pay money and i said so i want you to take care of that we think we can do that because we have a whole department that deals with international students okay that's one part the other part is uh, for every hour that I teach English to your students, I want a Russian language professor to teach me and, uh, and maybe a couple other students. Yeah. Okay, we'll do it. Because those Russian professors didn't have anything to do. They were university staff living in Kiev. Soviet Union fell apart. People don't want to be forced to learn Russian. But meanwhile, you, the professor can't be retired forcibly because so. They agreed to that. And then I said, uh, I said uh, and here's the last one. I want you to give us a classroom that, when it's not being used, to have, in a varsity, Probably Christian Stoongress meeting. Yeah. And that one, like, oh, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know, and I said, I remember, I, I wasn't this bold, but I said something to the tune of, well, I'm sure there are over 20 other universities that would be interested in my services around, this. wait, 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 wait. You know? <laughs> So they agreed. I mean, it's, I'm really combining, right. like, a year of conversations when I tell it to you that way and making right. myself look a little better than I probably did. But um, it worked It worked well. I had students, and I was allowed great latitude. So I remember a lot of the students were learning to learn English, and, you know, they get some sort of book English and BBC Radio, and they're like, teach us slang. Teach us slang. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to teach you slang. What, what year is this? This is
0: this is past the 80s so oh yeah like, no no i went over like, like i went MC over in 94. Hammer. this is
1: probably 95 96. okay you're, you're. so the message translation came out
0: okay
1: you read the message translation yeah well, i have it's it's, it's a sl- It's it's like a gold mine of slang. is it is it oh my god so <laughs> I mean, I, i'm just like i love the message. so he would say like herod dies and he says something like and that nasty old man Herod, finally bit the dust or something like that okay, you know okay. and okay. Well, that, I would never think to teach you, but the dust. Hmm. But uh, that was exactly, and so I remember presenting it. And later on, there was a German company, Siemens Kitchen uh, Appliances, hmm. and they they asked if they offered to pay me to come teach their salespeople English. And it was the same thing. And they were like, "Teach us slang." I'm like, "Well, I got something to teach you slang. I haven't found another book like it, but I don't know if you're gonna like why is it?" I said, "Because it's the Bible. The Bible." Is, right. And I was like, "And I'd like." mimeograph one sheet and give it out to them. I said, so if you can find another work of English literature that has this much slang on every page, I'll switch to it. All right, we'll read the Bible. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it that, worked It worked well. So awesome. it was a lot of fun stuff we were able to do. And um, I grew a lot. I mean, I had a Ukrainian girlfriend for a year or two, and we broke up, and uh, there were, you know, you, there were, Life was full of the problems that you have in full-time ministry anywhere. Conflicts, disappointments, frustrations. So, and...
0: so you, say, you say that, but I know that even myself personally, I have no idea what the day-to-day life of a foreign missionary is. Could you, I don't know, maybe walk me through a week? Well, it, it changed radically
1: over 13 or 14 years. Okay. So my first couple of years... Um, so, realize that before you get Russian, life is scary. There, the, the, the 90s are referred to in Ukraine and Russia as like the era of banditism, meaning gangs, Russian yeah. mafia. <clears throat> it, so, it was a little bit scary. And people would. It's a, and the other thing is that Russian the Russian language, so, intonation works very differently. Russian intonation can sound to American ears like someone's angry with you. Yeah. So when, in English, I say, uh, could you give me that pen on the table, please? So da 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 da, da. Yeah. In Russian, I say, da 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 That's kind of how we talk when we're angry. I told you da 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 You better, you know. And I remember, like, going to the market. So we're like, me and my roommate, I had an American roommate, Jonathan, that was staff for InterVarsity. And we'd be like running out of food and we're starving and we live right next to this market called Lukianoski Market. And we would go out there, but the market is like this cacophony. It's like the, you know, the, the you've seen in the movies where it's like everybody yelling and everything is all outside. <coughs> and there's people with like slabs of meat off of animals with blood running down them and there's flies, they're swatting the flies away. And you walk by and they're like, hey, young man, young man, buy these potatoes. These are excellent potatoes. And see, they've also got no sense of interpersonal space the way we do as America so like sometimes you're standing on a bus and like six inches from your nose is normal talking distance hey where are you from you know and and it gets very personal you know what what do you mean what do you do you're a missionary how much money do you make doing it it's just everything kind of crosses into the space that you're used to thinking of as your private space and after you get used to it you have to have kind of a breakdown and recover and then it's kind of fun and delightful in a way but initially, it's, you're, you've got to have at least one nervous breakdown, and, <laughs> uh, and, and probably several before you adjust. So, what so the my, first
0: year is kind of the like first year is, nervous breakdown, exactly. learning the language. Yeah. Uh, now, InterVarsity yeah.
1: took a lot of college students right out of college who had been active, and they would bring them on staff, and they would raise support. So I'm just saying InterVarsity had a, a – they, they set up ways to kind of semi-parent.
0: Okay.
1: And so uh, I helped them. They probably got 50, 60% of my time that first day. And, and, I, and I also benefited from a lot of stuff. <clears throat> so they took care of their people. And uh, and then there's uh, there are lots of people who want to be your friend because they want to learn English. There are girls. I mean, whatever your hotness is on a scale of 1 to 10, especially back in that time. For having the American passport, you have plus 6. So I wasn't like, but ugly and smelling bad, which meant I was Elvis, and uh, that is not the purpose for what you have gone to Ukraine. And yet, uh, I teach. So that Dragomanov University is a teachers' training college. They called it a pedagogical institute. Hmm. So it's just like here, teachers are ninety percent female, and uh, and they also think like going after a guy that's ten years older than you is or fifteen is fine. So. Uh, In a not entirely good way, I felt like Elvis or the Beatles being chased around. You know, they they were. It was very disconcerting. Talk about spiritual struggles. You got to imagine the intensity of loneliness and isolation from being in a strange place, not having close friends, and not understanding what's going on around you. And you compound that with very attractive young females with no sense of interpersonal distance who, like, yeah, and loose morals. So keeping my mind straight from that was very challenging.
0: That sounds very challenging, but it also feels like no one who's secular that's listening to this is going to give you yeah, no. feel bad for you at all. Right? Yeah.
1: Because they have no commitment to purity. So it no, just sounds no, they like don't. Fun.
0: They don't. And um, our, it's funny. I remember. Uh, did I'll, you did you guys lose like a percentage of people per year to that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I saw it happen several times.
1: Oh, it was common. There, there was only one or two people I knew, but InterVarsity, so it's funny, I'm friends on Facebook with a guy named Barrett Horn, who was, he used to be, he's retired and lives in the Yukon now, but he, he was uh, head of Ukraine and maybe some other parts of the former Soviet Union. He was over what InterVarsity was doing in those places. So within that network, which covered many cities and countries, I heard numbers of stories. Yeah. And uh, the girl who became my girlfriend for a while told me a story like that as well and it's uh, yeah it's really it's it's difficult to describe but I'll tell you something funny about that after I had been a missionary working for tab church tabernacle church for a couple years I came back this is 96 so I've been over there for like about two years I come back and uh, this is before camcorders were they they were out there but they were expensive yeah and so I had slides and a slide projector And I would go to, you know, and I would show slides of, these are the students, this is Alexandra who became a Christian, and this is Sasha, and this is Yvonne, and, you know, please pray for this and for that. And I would just, pictures of my ministry and stuff. And uh, I remember there was this class, it was a class of older guys. So older, we're talking some World War II era guys. In 96, yeah, so there were some guys in their 70s and stuff that were World Mm. War II votes. And uh, this is a conservative bunch. These Naturally. are old school guys. And, and they're saying, how can, I, how can we pray for you? And I'm going through these slides. I'm like, okay. I said, well, this next slide is going to give you an idea what to pray for me. So my, my roommate and I, Jonathan, had a party. Each of us taught like two, three classes a week at this university. Each one of these classes had you know between 15 and 30 students. And 90% of those students were female. And a lot of them were cute. And the average age was 19 or 20. So we announced we're having a party for our students and like 30 students show up and like 25 of them are gorgeous girls, scantily clad. (laughs) We're like, we don't know. What are you going to do? You you can't say it's only for girls. And and honestly, what what Jonathan and I would do, we're trying to get them to go to the student Bible studies. And those are led by Ukrainian girls primarily. So we're not fishing in the dating, Ukrainian dating pool. And, um, and, and so at one point, like, oh, let's all take pictures. So Jonathan and I sit, like, beside each other in chairs, and we're surrounded. It looks like the cheerleading squad. It's... <laughs> well, here's, the, here's where the, the funny story is, because there was this pressure I found early on. I would come back, I would do some support raising with other missionaries, and you're spending time, you're explaining about your ministry, and and I felt this pressure to, to give an unrealistically rosy view of what my ministry was, and it felt dishonest, and I start to really dislike this, I'm like, okay, most of my experience in the last two years has been failure, depression, pressure, battle, and very small successes. And I feel like I'm out here talking about, you know, like we're having Billy Graham crusades. And and I remember feeling like convicted by this. And I finally, I basically, I can't remember the specific conversation I had with God, but essentially my policy became, okay, God, I can't do this any differently. I'm going to tell people exactly how my experience was. And if money doesn't come after that, that's going to scare the heck out of me. But I guess this isn't what I'm going to be doing. And uh, I started to speak very differently. And the first thing I did, it was like the next day or shortly thereafter, I go to that men's class. When they see that slide of all these pretty girls standing, I mean, these men, I didn't, it got weirdly quiet. I did not understand that some of them just got mad. And uh, I only found out years later, because I told this story as I just told it to you, to my pastor years later, and he goes, Spencer. I got to tell you, after you showed that slide and spoke to that class, like half a dozen of these guys came into my office and said, why are we supporting this guy? We should not be doing this. You know, but here's the irony is that after I made that kind of decision that I'm just going to be out there, uh, my fundraising just went up significantly. I mean, I guess the, the thing is, it was, it was better for me to just be honest yeah. and out there, but that's... For me, that was a major hill to get over Um, because I felt nobody was directly putting the pressure on me, but I felt the pressure to sort of, I have to fulfill the image of successful missionary doing the missionary pastor things that we think he should be doing. And the life I was able to live out there did not match that, not because I didn't genuinely want everything to happen, just because things were not as easy or as simple. So
0: we're all over the place. No, I mean, I I think that's very good to hear for a lot of people who are thinking about getting into ministry or are in the midst of ministry, especially with today, with Instagram and Facebook and TikTok, where people only post happy things, you know, they're doing great, they're at the beach, they're... This has always been a pet
1: peeve about me. You know, you, I, I would just tell anybody considering going into ministry or who's in ministry, don't fake it. Yeah. I mean, you, 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 you can't produce people through your ministry by presenting to them a false view of yourself. Hmm. So where you have failures, now you don't need to dump the entire contents of your heart and your private struggles on everybody. But you, you cannot be standing in front of people and representing Jesus to them and knowing in your heart that I am pretending to be something that I'm not.
0: Thank you for joining me today in this little social experiment. To continue the conversation, check out our app and connect with one of our volunteers or invite someone in your circle of friends to have a God-centered discussion and subscribe to the podcast, which should continue rolling out episodes each month. If you like what you heard, please be sure to recommend us to a friend and give us a positive review in the Apple podcast store. It really helps people find the show. As a bonus, I'll read a shout out to you in the next episode. And finally, please consider supporting the ministry financially. This program and our mobile app are only possible because of individual donors like you. Please prayerfully consider adding this ministry to your regular giving schedule. The app, the podcast, the outreach campaigns, we do this all for free, but they cost money and we need your support. Coffee with a Christian is a registered 501c3, so all donations are tax deductible. Thanks again for checking us out. May God bless you and Christ be praised.